Good evening, church family. It's good to end off the Lord's Day together, and I trust that as we do so, the Lord is blessed and honored as we honor Him uh, on His day, on this Lord's Day. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Genesis 49. Uh, although my focus will be chapter 50, I do want us to read for the last bit of 49 again. Uh, Genesis 49, verse 29, all the way to the end of the book. This is God's word. May we hear it. Then he, Jacob, commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from the Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abram and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father, so the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in my tomb that I have hewed out. I'm about to die in, the, in, in my tomb that I've hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go and bury my father. Then I'll return. And Pharaoh answered, Go and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with them both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning of the, on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Misraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abram bought with a field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin. 
because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions, transgression of the servants of the king, or God of your fathers. Joseph wept and they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and he said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, and he and his father's house, Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They, they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And he's so far in the reading of God's word, may reform our lives to its truth. A few years ago, uh, a study was released by a biblical scholar in a well-known seminary in the States. And in that particular study, he looked at various biblical characters, particularly the biblical characters that we know how they lived and how they died. And after that study, he concluded that only one in three of them ended well. Think about it. All the biblical characters, only one in three Ended well. The majority of biblical characters, whether they were believers like David, Solomon, Asa, Asa, Elijah, or whether they were unbelievers like Saul or Judas or Demas, the majority of biblical characters did not finish well. Some died in hardened unbelief, and others died under a mountain of shame for their sin. And amidst all of these examples of men and women who did not finish well, Joseph stands out as one who did. He finished well. He ran the race set before him. And now when we come to see all of this, when we see how Joseph ended, how he ended the race before him, the question we have to ask is this. How will you end? How will you run the race that is set before you? Or perhaps, if I may ask it this way, how will you die? Will you die well? Now I know as soon as I ask that kind of question, some of you are already upset with me. I know what you're thinking, why so morbid, Shane? Don't we have enough of death around us? Have we not been through COVID? Are we not going through a season of grief? How dare you ask that question? If that's your thinking, I'm sad to say your thinking is aligned with this world. In this world, we will do whatever we can to not think about death, to not think about dying. 
No, we want a Disney ending where we just think happy thoughts and we hope that everything will will have a happy ever after. And I would suggest to you by not thinking about how we die, by not meditating about how we will finish, may I suggest to you we have lost something. If you look at various Christians throughout church history from various traditions, you will find what has been called Ars Mariae That is Latin for the art of dying well. Whether it's in the early church or whether it's the Catholic Middle Ages, whether it's the Protestant Reformation, whether it's the Puritans or even recently Wesley's Methodism, throughout church history, Christians have fought on death. Most of them were more acquainted to death than we are, yet they gave themselves to think on it, to meditate upon it. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. He said this, We are all as on some mighty eagle's wings swiftly on towards eternity. Let us then talk about preparing to die is the greatest thing we have to do, and we have soon to do it. So let us talk and think about it. Why? Why think about death? Why talk about it? Why preach a sermon on it? Well, for one, the Bible tells us to. The Bible calls us and tells us that, and calls us to, to number our days so that we would be wise. Psalm 90, verse 12. David even prays in Psalm 39, verse 4, O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. See, repeatedly the Bible calls upon us and tells us that we're like grass. We're here today, but we're gone tomorrow. Now why? Why would the Bible want us to think such morbid thoughts? Well, one reason is that we'd be prepared to meet our enemy. We have a fierce enemy in death, a fierce, vile enemy. And so you need to think about him. Young people, youth, young adults, think about death. Think about him now before you meet him. Prepare yourself. Why? So that you would die well. And not just die well, but live well. See, if we begin to see the measure of our days, then today, now becomes precious. Today becomes a day that we can live well for the glory of God. To quote Spurgeon again, he said, to be prepared to die is to be prepared to live. That is to say, by preparing to die well, we will inevitably, as a result, we'll be prepared to live now in light of then. In fact, the only way to live well now is to live in light of then. Although a bit simplistic, I think the Puritan Edmund Barker is right. He said this, every Christian has two great works in this life, to live well and die well. Now, why bring this up? Why talk about such a morbid 
topic, well, I would suggest to you that our passage gives us a theology of dying and living well. A theology of this passage provides us knowledge of God. That's what theology is all about. Not just academic ideas, but knowing God. Knowledge that enables us to live and die for God. Now, where do you see that? Firstly, you see this in the beginning and the end of our section. In the death of both Jacob and Joseph, we find Jacob's death in Genesis 49, 29 to chapter 15, verse 14. And we see Joseph's death and delayed burial in chapter 50, verse 22 to 26. And as we witness both of these men die, we see that they are men of faith and men who end well. And right in between those two accounts, sandwiched in the middle, is the heart of the passage. And there we see Joseph again. And we see how he loves, how he cares, how he forgives. You see that Genesis 50, verse 15 to 21. There we are given another picture of how Joseph lived. He lived with faith in God as one under God. And he lived well. And so in these men, more so Joseph than Jacob, we see men who lived well and died well. And how is that possible? How is it possible for for Joseph to to do this, to to live in such a way that he stands out as one who, who ends well? Well, I would suggest to you, He had a theology of dying and living well. He knew God. He knew God and resulted in him living well under the awareness of God's providence. And he died well with the assurance of God's promises. And the question for us is again, how are you doing? Are you going to end well? Are you on the road to ending well? Are you living well now so that you die well then? And that's really what I want to look at this evening. Two simple questions I want us to ask. How can we die well? How can we live well? The lives of Joseph and Jacob help us answer those questions, particularly when we start seeing their theology. First question. How can we die well? Die on God's promises. Die on God's promises. We've all heard that idiom where someone says this or that is a hill to die on. And what they mean there is that something is so important that their full conviction and confidence is in that, that they will forsake all else for this thing. Well, dear friends, God's promises ought to be the hills we die on. They are so important that we should with full conviction and confidence stake everything on them and forsake everything for them. We see this in Jacob and Joseph. Firstly with Jacob, we see him on his deathbed in Egypt and he asked to be buried in the cave of Machpelah, which is the burying site of his father. And we might ask, why would he do that? That just seems like a schlep. Yet we know he wants to do that. He he commands his children to take him there because his faith is in God's promises. Jacob knows that his inheritance is not Egypt because he knows what God has promised. 
And so he commands his sons to be buried there. Now you might have wondered why our passage describes Jacob's burial with such great detail. I would argue that Jacob's burial and procession from Egypt is a prophetic sign and picture of what is to come. Jacob's burial and, and procession out of Egypt is a small exodus of the greater exodus to come. Jacob is, as one author put it, the first fruits of the Exodus. Now, there's a few uh, parallels that help us see this. Firstly, in Exodus, Moses asked Pharaoh to, to let his people go. Well, here, Joseph asked Pharaoh to let him and his family go. In Exodus, Pharaoh tried to keep Israel's children and livestock in Egypt. Well, here, Israel is buried and the children and the livestock stay behind. In Exodus, Pharaoh's chariots and horses chase after Israel, yet here the, his chariots and horsemen guide Israel. In Exodus, we see the Egyptians weeping for the death of their firstborn. Well, here we see the Egyptians weeping, not for their children, but for the father of the nation of Israel. See, what the reader is meant to see is that all of this is a picture of what is to come, and the reader is meant to see that God actually keeps his promises. The promises he made to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob, Jacob died on those promises. But you see it even more so in a greater degree with Joseph. We find Joseph on his deathbed in Egypt as well. Yet unlike Jacob, he doesn't say to his brothers, hey, take me to Egypt. No, he says, put my body in a box, and when you leave Egypt, when you enter into the promise, and then you take me with. Look at verse 24 and 25 of chapter 15. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made his sons, the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you will carry up my bones from there. Now, Hebrews 11.22 mentions that this is the display of J Joseph's faith. Because by faith he knew that God would visit his people and bring them out of Egypt and grant them the promised land. How did he know this? Well, Jacob died on the promises of God. He, he said all, and he forsake all for God's promises. God has promised to give his people the land of Canaan, and therefore Joseph can die in peace, knowing that God will bring them out of the land of Egypt and bring them into the promised land. Now think about that for a second. Joseph here is 110 years old, and so if he was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery, then he's been in Egypt for 93 years. 93 years, 20 of which was in slavery, 70 of which enjoyed the prosperity of Egypt. Yet despite his position, despite his prosperity, Joseph's faith is still set on the promises of God. It's so easy for us in light of our world to so enjoy our world that we're completely oblivious to God's promises. That we're completely oblivious to what God has, has given us. Yet we forsake that for this world. Not, not Joseph. 
Why? Because he died on these promises. He set and forsake all for it. He, he bargained everything on God's promises. See, for Jacob and Joseph, the hill they died on were the promises of God. And so let's ask the question, why die on these promises? Why stake all and forsake all for God's promises? Well, simply because God is faithful to his promises. Here is the anchor of the soul of God's people. God makes promises and he is faithful to his word. Have we not often been encouraged by Numbers 23, 16 or 19? God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? See, God is faithful to his promises, and I would argue that both Jacob and Joseph die on God's promises because they've seen God being faithful. One, God promised Abraham that his name will be great. Well, here in the exaltation of Joseph, his name is great because the descendant of Abraham is exalted in Egypt. Two, God promised Abraham that he would be a great nation. Well, here, because of Joseph, a family is reconciled and it's becoming a great nation. The fact that both of them get to see their grandchildren is a picture of prosperity and growth. Three, God promised Abraham that he will be a blessing. Well, here, Jacob, through Joseph, the nation of Egypt enjoys God's blessing because of the wisdom of Joseph. Did you see both Jacob and Joseph have seen God being faithful and, and therefore they die on these promises. They want to be buried in the promised land because the God who has made those promises has been faithful and he will be faithful. Dear friends, have we not seen God's faithfulness? Have we not seen our God be faithful to us in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? In fact, I would argue we have seen more of God's faithfulness than either Jacob and Joseph ever could have imagined. Yes, God promised to make Abraham's name great. Well, his name was made greater ever than what Joseph ever could because Jesus is exalted above every other name, Philippians 2 tells us. Every other name will proclaim him as Lord. There you see Abraham's greatness. Yes, God promised to make Abraham a great nation, while in Jesus, Abraham becomes the father of not just one nation, but in that nation, is a people saved from every other nation. Yes, God promised Abraham that he will be a blessing. Well, in Jesus, Abraham is a blessing to the nations because Jesus, the seed of Abraham, saves not from famine, but from sin. See, we have seen God being faithful. We have seen him keep his promises. Because we have seen Jesus, the son of Abraham, who is a blessing and a blessing to the nations. Here we sit. Yet there's an important parallel between Jacob, Joseph, and us. 
They died looking forward to God's promises, the promise of the promised land. Well, dear Christian, as we die, we look forward to our promised land. Not a, a patch of dirt in the Middle East. No, we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth where we will enjoy eternal life with our God. Dear friends, church, the point is this. Do you want to see God's faithfulness? Yes, look to Joseph. But more importantly, look to Jesus. Because the promise that Joseph put his faith in is the promise that has ultimately been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In Jesus we see God's faithfulness, and in Jesus all of God's promises find their yes and amen, and therefore those are promises to die on. What better hill is there to die on? Hebrews, Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Dear believer, what is your hope? Is your hope this world? Is it this Egypt? Is it some patch of dirt in the Middle East? No, the promise, our hope is the promise of, of the resurrection, the promise of new heavens and new earth, the promise of the hope of glory. Where for the glory of God we will exist and enjoy our God. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. Isaac Watts said, I believe the promises of God enough to venture an eternity on it. Dear friends, will you venture an eternity on God's promises? Will you die on that hill God has said and you'll believe it? So, so how can you die well? Answer, die on God's promises. Set your confidence, your hope, your faith, your trust in the God who has given you great and precious promises and the God who has promised to be faithful. I read of a story in one of the daily breads of an elderly Christian man who was on his deathbed and while his pastor was visiting, he became very anxious and fearful. Oh, pastor, he said, for years I've relied upon the promises of God, but now in the hour of death, I cannot remember a single one for my comfort. And the pastor with wisdom and kindness responded, my brother, do you think God will forget his promises? At that point, that man smiled. No, no, he won't, won't. Dear friends, for our comfort, God has given us great and precious promises. And despite our weakness, our lack of faith, our weak faith, God remains faithful to His promises. See, God's faithfulness to His promises provides us with a theology of dying well. Because we set our hope on those promises. Second question, how can we live well? How can we live well? Live in God's providence. Live in God's providence. In the middle section of our passage, we see Joseph's interaction with his brothers, and in this interaction we are given another window into this man. In particular, we are given a window into his theology. 
Remember, this is a man who's experienced evil. He knows what it's like to be hated and victimized. He knows what it's like to be maligned and falsely accused. He knows what it's like to be imprisoned and to be forgotten and to be lonely. Yet how has this man managed to survive all of this? How has he endured this without becoming an embittered, shriveled, despondent man? I know some embittered, shriveled, despondent men. How did he not become that? The answer is he understands that God is almighty, that he is sovereign over all things, and he governs and guides all things according to the counsel of his will, i.e., he guides all things by his special providence. Uh, my favorite definition of God's providence, I know a few has have already been shared. My favorite definition is given by the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 10, question 27. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby as with his hand he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. As we saw in Genesis 39, God was with Joseph and Joseph was with God because he knew he lived under the care of his father, a God who cares and loves and you see that come out so beautifully again in chapter 50, verse 19 and 21. Look how he responds to his brothers who are fearful, who are like us, often forgetting God's providence, forgetting God's promises, becoming fearful. Look how he responds to them. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Notice three things about what he says there from the three verses. The second one is the focal one, but notice three things. Firstly, Joseph rests in God being God. He says, am I in the place of God? He's in effect saying, it's not my place to judge you. It's not my place to condemn you, to, to seek vengeance. No, vengeance belongs to the Lord. That, that's his work. See, Joseph leaves God to be God. He leaves the writings of wrong to God. He leaves himself in the hands of the sovereign God over all things. There is only one person on the throne, and it's not Joseph. He rests in the fact, therefore, that, that God is God. How freeing that must be. The hardest place is Joburg traffic to deal with this truth, because you want vindication right there. But this is meant to free us of that bondage to leave wrongs to God because He is God. He is just. He is sovereign. And He is sovereign and just and even working out good in wrongs. I don't know the good He works out through taxes, but anyway. 
Secondly, he rests, he rests in, God's, in God being God, but secondly, he remembers that God is good. He tells his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I think Joseph here is working out practically what it means when we say that God is good. When we say that God is good, that doesn't mean that he's going to give us a life full of a bed of roses, free from sin and evil and pain and suffering. No, it means that despite the evil, this truth still stands. He is good. It means that even evil is used for a good end by a good God. Joseph is reminding his brothers that God is good, and that truth is the truth we need to remember even when we can't see it. I, I know many of you love Psalm 119, verse 68. Some of you have told me you love this song. This is your life verse. You are good and do good. What a comforting verse that our God is good. But what does the rest of the verse say? You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. May I suggest to you that knowing that God is good even in evil is a great means through which we get to know our God. It's a great means through which God teaches us and we grow in our relationship with God so that we can live with Him and for Him. David Kingdon, in his book on Joseph and God's providence, he helpfully applies it this way. He says, does a friend forsake you? Well, the experience will do you a great good if it drives you close to God. Does disappointment befall you? Then it will be a blessing if you realize that God will never disappoint his own. Does hurt come to you? It will do you good if it makes you look to heaven where there is no pain. Are, you, are your comforts taken away? is that God may teach you that he is more concerned to see you holy than comfortable. Keep on learning, he says, this truth that God brings good out of men's malice. The point is this, our God is good, and he does good. It's our job to learn and grow so that even that evil could be used as means to deepen our faith and our trust and our hope in our God. Uh, Psalm 84, 11 is the Old Testament version of Romans 8, 28. It's not an easy verse, I know, but it's a necessary verse. David says, No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. If God doesn't withhold pain and affliction from you, dear believer, know this, it must mean that God is using even that pain, that affliction, for a good end. And so see that your God is good. Know that He is good and that even evil is meant for good. And so secondly, we see that Joseph remembers that God is good. Thirdly, he reflects that goodness. He reflects that goodness. Realize Joseph could have stopped at verse 19. He could have said, God is God. He's going to judge you. I won't. He could have stopped at verse 20. He, said, he could have said, well, God is good. And despite you, he will do something good, regardless of you. 
Now, if he stopped there, these brothers would still be under the burden of their fear and their guilt, which would paint Joseph as really unloving and embittered. Yet that's not who he is. In verse 21, he responds with love. He responds by reflecting God's goodness to them. Not only does he tell them to not fear, but he promises to provide for them, to care for them, to, to seek their good. Dear friends, Joseph's response here is a picture of God's goodness to us. When we sinned in Adam, God didn't respond to man saying, I am God and I am just and now you're going to pay. He didn't say, I am good and I am going to bring good regardless of you and without you. No, God responds essentially saying, yes, I am God, and I am just, I will punish sin. Yes, I am good, and I'll bring out good from your sin. But he also says, I'll provide for you. I'll provide for you a Savior, a Savior who will satisfy my justice, and a Savior who will bring good for you from your evil. Isn't that what Jesus has done at the cross? Isn't that what the cross shows us? God is just, yes. God will bring good, yes. But he does it in providing a savior for us. He was pierced for our transgressions, right? He was crushed for our iniquities. Why? To satisfy God's justice. And the result is our good. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Or consider how Paul would say it in Romans 4, 25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised up for our justification. In a far greater way than Joseph and his brothers, we have seen God bring good out of evil. We have seen him do so in the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Now, to get back to the point, Joseph shows us what a life well-lived looks like. He lives in God's providence. And what that practically looks like is this. He rested in the fact that God is God. He remembered that his God is good, and he reflected that goodness to those around him. Now, if Joseph could do that, because his family was saved out of famine. Dear church, what about us? According to God's definite plan and foreknowledge, the father allowed lawless men to kill his son for us. To be our substitute, be our savior. We have tasted and seen God's goodness. And surely then, should we not rest in him who is God? In the world that we don't understand, in the trials and afflictions we can't make sense of, must we not rest in him? Should we not remember that he's good even in evil? And should we not reflect that goodness to those around us? That is a life well lived. That, if you think about it, is how Christ lived. He yielded himself to the Father. He knew that the pain that he was in to endure was good, and he showed grace and mercy and goodness to those, very, those who persecuted him. So, so how can we live well? 
answer, live in God's providence. See, the fact to rejoice in, the truth to find comfort in is this, the God who is providentially reigning over all things, even the evil, that God is good. And when we see his goodness, when we note how good he's been to us, then and then only will we begin to live well. Because we know he's in control. Someone has said this, when we remember that, we we must remember that if we face the sun, the shadows fall behind us, but if we turn our backs on the sun, the shadows will be in front of us. Obvious. Well, it's often true, isn't it, that we turn our back on God and the thing that we stare in front of us is just evil and trouble and affliction. That's all we see. That's all we get consumed by. And how often we fail to turn our faith to God, to look to Him and to be reminded that He is good, that we live under the countenance of His face, His goodness, His grace. And the result will be if we look to Him and live in His providence, evil won't consume us. There will be shadows behind us. And so my suggestion to you is this, God's goodness in His providence provides us with a theology of living well. And so what is a theology of dying and living well? It's a theology that throws itself on the doctrines of God's faithfulness and God's goodness. It's a theology that dies on the heel of God's promises and that lives under the light of His providence. It is a theology that lives for God, in God, and to God. But may I suggest to you, this theology of dying well and living well must drive us to a Christology of dying and living well. If you look at verse 24, you find this beautiful statement of Joseph. Joseph assures his brothers with this, I'm about to die, but God, we know those two words, but God will visit you. Doesn't that even reflect something of what we saw in Ephesians 2? We are dead in our sins, but God has visited us. He saved us. He's given us grace. See, verse 24 is the promise, the promise of God visiting his people. It's that promise that brings a solution to the problem of Genesis. There's a huge problem in Genesis. I'm not sure if you knew Genesis begins with a life in Eden and ends with death in Egypt. Why? Because of sin. Our sin, my sin, we've sinned against God and the only solution is this promise that God will visit. And that promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the son of Eve who comes to crush the head of the serpent, the one who comes to give life to those who are dead in sin. See, we need a Christology of dying and living well. See, God's providence and God's promises, the lines of which meet at the cross of Calvary, where God in love gives his son for us, where the son in love offers himself willingly for us. Dear friends, there is a hill to die on. There is faithfulness and goodness that meet in the face of evil because there Jesus dies for sinful people like you and me and he saves us 
and he rescues us. And the way to die well and live well is to die to self and live for this Jesus. Here is one verse about a Christology of dying and living well. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Do you want to live life well? Well, live it for Jesus. Live it under Jesus as your king and rest in the fact that he is king, that he is Lord. Live under Jesus as your priest, remembering that he has brought good out of your evil. He has saved you. And live under Jesus as your prophet who calls you to reflect that goodness to those around you. And, and if you live for Jesus, if you live counting all things as rubbish in comparison to knowing him then and then only, will you live well and you will die well. Because those in Christ, for those in Christ, death is gain. To die well doesn't mean that you die a pleasant death. No, Christ died a horrific, horrible, evil, painful death. No, to die well is to have a life lived in Christ and to be assured that no matter what death we have, we will be with Christ. So again, dear friends, how will you finish? How will you die? Are you preparing to die well? Are you preparing to meet that enemy called death? And more importantly, are you preparing to meet your living Savior? The one who conquers death and who will bring you into eternal life, into his glory. May, may we break the odds. May you be the one in three that ends well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you to confess that really these things perhaps sometimes isn't pleasant. To think about dying well, to do so even when we're grieving, when we've lost loved ones, is no easy task. Yet, dear Lord, as we reflect on these things, we pray that Christ would be precious in our minds, that we would think on his death and the life he lives now, that our faith would be in him, the one who has answered all of your promises, the one who has fulfilled all of your providences in our salvation. And so with the cross of Christ firmly set in our gaze, firmly embedded in our hearts, we pray, dear Lord, that you'd help us to live well so that we would die well. Dying to self and living to Christ. And help us to see this as not some burdensome task, but to see it as the means through which we enjoy you. Enjoying your presence. Seeing how you fulfill your promises and your faithfulness to see how you meet us with your goodness even in dark providences.
Oh, dear Lord, stir our hearts with joy in knowing Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.